6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Well, we're in the epistle to the Colossians, and we're going to undertake the last half of chapter 2. But whenever we enter the Word of God, we want to do it with prayer. So let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for your Word, and we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We do pray, Father, that you would use this time to open our hearts and lives to what you would have of us. Guard us against error and help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, as we study the profound letter of Colossians, we must heed Paul's warnings. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 4, he said, Lest any man should beguile you. In chapter 8, he said, Lest any man spoil you. In, chapter, in verse 16, he said, let no man therefore judge you. So in our outline, of course, we previously have been through the first half of chapter 2, but we're now going to focus ourselves on man-made disciplines for the rest of this chapter. And it's going to be very rich in many ways. But let's back up here. It says, in verse 18, it said, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Beguile you. An old English word meaning to judge against you. And, uh, but it's interesting, the error against which Paul warned them later developed into the heresy called Gnosticism. When we use that term, we're really indulging in an anachronism because Gnosticism really rose up a century or two later. Its roots are here, though. So we recognize it so clearly, we still call it Gnosticism, although that technically is really the labels that were used in, a, in the next century and two. Uh, but it, it's those errors that we're dealing with. This false teaching assigned to Christ a subordinate place in the true Godhead, and it undervalued the uniqueness and completeness of His redemptive work. Very subtle, very dangerous. It also interposed a host of beings angels, and so forth, forming a bridge of which Christ was simply a member. Not so. Whether disillusioned by self-imposed blinders and the myopia of contemporary science, or frustrated by the moral bankruptcy of unbridled materialism, increasing numbers of desperate people are now seeking answers outside the realm of natural phenomena and are pursuing the supernatural. And uh, we see might diagram it this way. Two kinds of groups, those that are frustrated with the myopia of contemporary science, falsely so-called, or the moral bankruptcy of our society, unbridled materialism. As these desperate people 
come to the ends of those possibilities, where do they turn? Surprisingly, they turn to the supernatural. They really are, this is the flight to mysticism in many forms. And uh, they're asking the question, is there anyone out there? And they're reaching beyond the natural to the supernatural, and that's very dangerous. That leads them to things that they call the new age, which is not new at all. It's the old things repackaged. It leads to actual outright witchcraft, Wicca and others. And it deals with the Kabbalah in, in a mystical Judaism, if you will. And uh, we'll for, uh, for the, the others are pretty obvious. We'll focus on Kabbalah because it's become a major topic. And we as students of the Bible and Judaism, we need to understand what that's really all about. And uh, especially since it's such a fad these days in Hollywood, although a true Kabbalist will smile at that as, non as a popular variation, the nonsense that Hollywood is embracing. But Kabbalah originally is a term meaning received tradition. Generically or connotatively, it refers to Jewish mysticism in all its various forms. But denotatively, it refers specifically to the esoteric theosophy that was crystallized in the 12th and 13th centuries in Spain and Provence, France. So that uh, it is particularly paradoxical to find these occultic practices embedded within Judaism despite the numerous explicit prohibitions against all forms of the occult that's littered all through the Torah that is so highly venerated among those Jews. It's an interesting contradiction in its own right. The Torah prohibits the occult, and the Kabbalah is occultic. You see, we need to realize that Judaism was redefined in that first century. Why? Because two cataclysmic events shattered traditional Judaism. Their rejection of the Christ as the Messiah. He showed up on the very day that Gabriel had predicted five centuries earlier, and yet they rejected him. The same crowd that threw the palm branches down on the 10th of Nisan on the 14th were saying, crucify him. And the second thing that was offshoot of that is that 38 years later, the Roman legions tore down Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, major milestone in Jewish history, and the destruction of the temple in that uh, situation. Over a million and a half people slaughtered in a nine-month period by the four legions, the 9th, 10th, 12th, and 15th legions. And uh, so the question they were confronted with is how can there be a continuation of the prescribed sacrifices without an altar and temple. The entire Torah is built on the premise that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That's what it's all about. Now they cannot shed blood. There's no altar, no temple. What do you do? It's a real crisis. So they convened the Council of Yomnia in AD 90. And what they did is they began redefining Judaism into a works trip kind of thing. They had to stay, stand back from all the prescribed sacrifices, which they were not in any position to follow through. And so uh, that led to the formulation of the Talmud. And that gets uh, formalized in the 3rd through the 6th century. And uh, that, this, the, the subsequent era is called the Geonic Era, an era of sages and wise men that, that interpreted the law and dealt with the practical problems that they faced and they grew into a mode where they venerated these wise rabbis higher than the, demand, the, the actual explicit prescriptions in the text itself. 
So it goes through a transition. The Talmud. It's a body of civil and religious law, which includes commentaries on the Torah, or the Pentateuch, as people might call it in the Greek. And it also incorporates the oral traditions that had been handed down. All the way through from the Exodus, where the nation Israel is born, all the way to Ezra and Nehemiah, the captivity, and then they return therefrom. When you get to that period, they start incorporating what they considered as oral traditions, the oral law, the laws that were handed down orally, generation to generation. That leads to what you and I would allude to as Pharisaical Judaism. The Pharisees were the strict sect that uh, uh, made a career of defining these oral traditions and refining them. And uh, that's what Jesus pre- preached against when he, during his ministry. Because they'd strain at the details, missing the whole point of the original empowering laws. So this is, uh, this is, uh, this is the area, the, the tension. Two major groups emerge. The Pharisees, that are the strict conservatives, you could call them. And the Sadducees, which were the liberals of that day. The Sadducees rejected the supernatural. They rejected the idea of resurrection and so forth. That's why they were sad, you see. Now, I realize it's a pretty corny uh, uh, pun, but it's useful because it'll help you remember which were the liberals and which were the conservatives. And uh, so, so the Talmud is the codification of those oral laws that from the 3rd through the 6th and 8th centuries. And uh, it consists of the Mishnah, which is the codification of the laws, the Gemara, which is a commentary on the Mishnah, and the Halakha, which is the scholarly materials on disputed legal questions, and the Haggadah, which is the illustrations and amplifications of certain ethical, political, and religious principles involved in the laws. Collectively, these four things make up what is known as the Talmud. Now, there are two compilations of the Talmud. One is called the Jerusalem Talmud, that was developed between the 3rd and 5th century AD, and the Babylonian Talmud from the 3rd all the way through the 6th. Strangely enough, the Babylonian Talmud of the two is considered the more authoritative, primarily because that academy endured a lot longer. In fact, Babylon becomes a major Jewish center right, in, right, right on through. That's where uh, Peter was, according, even as alluded to in the epistles, as being there at least at one time. So, now what's interesting is the... Uh, for many centuries, all the way to the, from the 7th to the 11th century, they call that the Geonic Era. That's an era that is characterized by the emergence of major Hebrew sages that become very expert in the subtleties and details of the Talmud. And you'll find quotations from the Jerusalem Talmud or the Babylonian Talmud in their writings. The Jerusalem Talmud is a misnomer. It was actually done in Tiberias, not in Jerusalem, and because uh, they weren't allowed there. That's a whole other thing. But uh, both these compilations can have the same Mishnah, but each has its own Gemara, so they have some subtle differences. But the real problem here is the veneration of the commentator, commentaries. The epistemological problems emerged because of an excessive veneration of the scholastic commentators over the text itself. These commentators are com- commenting on the text, but they become considered more authoritative, in effect, <clears throat> than the text itself. Big mistake. As their tether lengthens from the text, it gets further and further from the truth. It gets further and further tangled, and it becomes uh, a tangle. And you'll see what I mean in a minute. A number of the major events there, there's the Mishnah Torah by a Spanish rabbi, a philosopher, and a physician that becomes very famous called Maimonides. Many people venerated him. He's considered one of the great sages of the Geonic era. And uh, 
He has an abstract of all the rabbinical legal literature that was in existence at his time, major authority. Among one of the most widely known commentaries are those of the Babylonian Talmud by the French rabbi Rashi. Rashi and Maimonides are two big names within Talmudic Judaism. And we're talking here all the way through the 12th and 14th century. But this lengthening of the tether reaches its extremes in the imaginative conjectures that emerged from certain class of scholars called Kabbalistic scholars of the 11th and 12th centuries and following. Along this way, I can't resist highlighting a very unusual group that is in history by the, called the Karaites. In the 8th century, there emerged a Jewish sect known as Karaites who clung to the strict interpretations of the scriptures, rejecting the Talmud and the rabbinical traditions that had been incorporated in the first six centuries AD. So they were considered heretics uh, by the Orthodox Jews. And in, in Tsarist Russia, very interesting, they were exempted from all those abuses that were imposed on the Orthodox Jews, double taxation, the pogroms, and so forth, that fell on Talmudic Judaism. I think it's very ironic, the ones that stood stuck to the scripture were so different that the Tsar didn't pick on them, they focused their attention on the Talmudic Jews. And so today, even today, there's still about 30,000 Karaites, concentrated largely in Israel. Small communities are also found in the United States, Poland, France, and Turkey. In fact, there's a very valuable document called the Leningrad Codex that we got from that group. We're indebted to them for, and their diligence bore fruit for all of us in that codex. But out of all this era comes the Kabbalah, one of the basic works that's going to influence all subsequent mystical movements in Judaism is the Sefer HaZohar, or Zohar for short. And it's a, a large collection of writings composed by Moses de Leon in Leon, Spain, who lived in Guadalajara, a, the former Spanish kingdom of Castile, until about 1290. And thereafter, he led a life of wandering. And uh, he was a very prolific writer, completely immersed in mysticism. And the Zohar, his greatest work, was written over 30 years in Aramaic. And uh, so it depicts the Godhead as a dynamic flow of force. Above and beyond all human contemplation is God as he is in himself, the unknowable, immutable Ein Sof, which means infinite nothingness. Now, this, these, concept, these mystical conceptions, what they're doing is depersonalizing God as some kind of super force field thing. And uh, there are other, all the uh, other aspects or attributes are knowable through God's relation to the created world. They emanate from Ein Sof in a con configuration of ten sephirot, realms or planes, through which the divine power further radiates to create the cosmos. So this is their model that they build their conjectures on. Zoharic theosophy concentrates on the nature and interaction of these ten sephirots as symbols of the inner life and processes within the Godhead. Now, these ten sephirot, you'll find these diagrams in various forms in all the Kabbalistic literature, but there's ten sephirot, and I won't go through the details. One is the supreme crown, one is wisdom, one is intelligence, one is... These are just labels of these forces. They're more complex than it would imply just by the label. But the power and the beauty and lasting endurance, majesty, foundation or the righteous one, and the kingdom. These sephirot 
are studied and their interactions are speculated on that make acres of literature in this area. And some of these diagrams and stuff are very complex, very esoteric, and uh, they all deal with the inner workings of what's going on inside the Godhead is the concept. And because they're viewed as archetypes for everything in the world of creation, an understanding of their workings ostensibly illuminate the inner workings of the entire cosmos and all of history. So there's a link between the, the Godhead, the cosmos, the history of Israel, and then we ourselves are all participants here. Now the Zohar thereby provides a cosmic symbolic interpretation of Judaism and of the history of Israel, in which the Torah and the commandments, as well as Israel's life in exile, all become intertwined as symbol for events and processes in the inner life of God. They're all entangled here and deal with speculations and writings. So suddenly now, what's emerging here out of this mysticism is the proper observance of commandments by man starts to assume a cosmic importance. And that's where they start, in effect, inverting all this. The concept of divine self is, among other things, a tragic attempt to depersonalize God in contrast to the unknowable knowingness of Ein Sof or the unknowable, capricious, and thus untrustworthy Allah of the Quran. Strange enough, both of these things have that in common. They both are attempts to depersonalize God, and they both are in the Allah of the Quran. Allah in Islam can do anything. He's capricious, he's unknowable, he's unpredictable. Read that untrustworthy. It's interesting to realize that the presentation whether it's from the Kabbalah or whether it's the Allah of the Quran, is the absolute opposite of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, who's a God that delights in making and keeping his promises. The very conceptions are absolutely diametrically opposed. The yod vav or Yahweh, however you want to pronounce it, of the Old Testament is a God who delights in his integrity and keeping and uh, making and keeping promises. Now, the errors here are manifold. Any attempt to chart the inner life of the Godhead by means of the Sephirot or any other thing is akin to uncovering the Father's nakedness, which is a sin of grave disrespect specifically emphasized in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament itself. Examples are in Genesis 9, where Noah's sons uncover his father. That's considered, that's considered an... Uh, uh, an irresponsible betrayal of the father. In 2 Samuel 16, there's other, there, that teaching among the rabbis is understood. Not the Kabbalists. They are, in effect, violating that. The disciplines of the Kabbalah include meditative practices that promise to enable individuals to share and participate in the diverse dimensions of God's being. Very arrogant presumption, in fact. It's very similar to some of the claims and aspirations of the New Agers to somehow be a participant in, in the, the supernatural there. Now there is a development called the Lurianic Kabbalah in the 16th century. It's named after Isaac ben Solomon Luria. He developed a dramatic cosmic aspect of the Zohar. The Lurianic system represented a response to the cataclysmic experience of the Jewish exiles expelled from Iberia or Spain in the 1490s. And it, was project, and it projected this experience onto the divine world. There was a very traumatic era in 1490 when all Jews 
were, had, were forced to leave Spain by midnight of August, I forgot the date, but anyway, the third or whatever, they all had to leave um, Spain. That was a very traumatic uh, time for Israel, and their trauma is reflected in the, their beliefs about the, the, the Kabbalah. It's interesting to realize that among those Jews that had to leave by midnight was Columbus and his crew. They left at, before midnight that time because they were Jewish. Many people don't know that, and there's a very colorful background I invite you to dig into. We run articles on it in our, in, in our database, in, in, our, in our materials. But in the system of the Lurianic Kabbalah, the Ein Sof is viewed as withdrawing into himself at the outset of creation, making room for the world, but also for evil. That's their way they try to explain the origin of evil, a cosmic catastrophe in which emanations and vessels of divine light shattered and sparks were imprisoned in the world as shards of evil. That's the way they build a, a, an origin of evil in their minds. Luria held that God, as well as Israel, was in need of redemption from exile, and that humanity was assigned the critical role in the cosmic drama of redemption. The human task, through prayer and proper observance of the commandments, becomes nothing less than the redemption of the world and the reunification of the Godhead in their mind. Now you may say, that sounds kind of arrogant, and indeed it is, that somehow they need our help, you know, for some problem they've got to solve. It seemed that, that without you and me, God would not be able to get his act together. My reaction is, get serious. That's patently absurd, and yet they take this very seriously. The Kabbalists take this very seriously and embellish it with all kinds of eloquent rhetoric. But... There was indeed, there was indeed a man assigned the critical role in this cosmic drama who was indeed fully qualified, worthy, and capable for the role. And he is presently sitting on his father's throne as you read this. Indeed. But Luria's thought provided the basis for transforming the Kabbalah into a popular messianic movement within Judaism. And it infused the rabbinic traditions and affected all Jewry, paving the way for the Sebastian Messianism of the 17th century and the Hasidics of the 18th century. So that leads us to the next major milestone is the Hasidic Judaism. Now in the Hebrew Bible, the word Hasid refers to a pious or righteous person in general. The plural is Hasidim. By the 11th and 12th centuries, however, the term Hasid implied a person involved specifically in a mystical form of contemplated piety. It came to be applied specifically to, a, to German Jewish mystics known as the Hasidai Ashkenazi, the German priests, who became known for rigorous ascetic practices designed to suppress the power of physical appetites to place the body under dominion of the soul as it strove for intimate knowledge of God. All kinds of self-abuse practices, uh, swimming in the water in winter and all, those ki all kinds of self-abuse was part of their ascetic uh, enforced lifestyle. Hasidism, as we know it today, developed in the mid-18th century in the Eastern Europe from the Kabbalah and continues today in dozens of Hasidic communities around the world. I was quite surprised. I always assumed that Kabbalah was an extreme form of Hasidicism. It's the other way around. The Kabbalah what got very strange and mystical. The Hasidics, in some sense, was a reaction to that, a little more moderate but they both coexist today within Judaism. 
Some communities of the Hasidic Judaism consist of only a few hundred members in isolated Jewish communities in New York City, Los Angeles, and Jerusalem. Other Hasidic groups um, have international memberships numbering in the tens of thousands. And all these communities trace their origins back to the 18th century uh, Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, better known to the Jewish world as Baal Shem Tov, which is Hebrew for the master of the divine name. And he's credited with all kinds of miracle cures. There's all kinds of colorful traditions that surround all these things. So let's summarize this. Mosaic Judaism is what you would designate Judaism from the Bible, from the Exodus, the birth of Israel as a nation, through, through about the days of Ezra. It's from that period through the gospel period that we see the rise of the oral tradition taking hold through the, Pharise the Pharisees, the Pharisaical Judaism. And that's what's prevalent and dominant in the uh, um, gospel period. The Pharisees yield more to the Sadducees. The real power tends to be with the liberals later in the, in the book of Acts and following. Talmudic Judaism gets, emerges in the third century through the eighth as it gets formulated. And the Kabbalah emerges at the 12th century, and Hasidic Judaism emerges in the 18th century, just to give you a rough feeling for how Judaism evolves into something that you would consider unrecognizable from the point of view of Mosaic Judaism. Simply because throughout, since, the, since 70 AD, they have no temple. They have no way to practice Judaism as specified in the Torah. So they venerate the Torah on the one hand, but can't follow it on the other. It's a, Paradox, that's a difficult thing to deal with. Now, in all of this, there's another thing to be aware of, that's Gematria. See, in the Kabbalah, there's great importance attached to the manifold manipulations of letters and numbers. Hebrew, like Greek, those two languages are distinctive in that they, all the letters have numerical values. And people play with that in all kinds of ways. Um, especially those that are involved with the names of God. And they even ascribe, Kabbalah subscribes magical properties, certain combinations of letters and numbers. And that's a big part of what they do. The manipulation of the numeric values assigned to the alphabet is called gametria. And there are virtually unlimited varieties of rules for the use. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 